You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace, safety, health, and well-being. You've probably heard many times that work, diet, sleep, and stress can impact your health. But do you know how and why? We went to one of our researchers at our institute, Dr. Mitch Turker, for some answers. Dr. Turker has been studying the epigenome for many years. He received a PhD in pathology from the University of Washington, as well as a JD from Lewis and Clark Law School, where he studied environmental law here in Portland, Oregon. He's an avid hiker and enjoys all things outdoors in the Pacific Northwest. His research is focused on understanding how genetic changes occur and its relevance to cancer and aging. Let's start by sharing with our listeners today what epigenetics is and how does it impact our work and health. So before I discuss epigenetics, I have to talk a little bit about genetics in in the simple terms. So essentially we are products of our parents. We inherit genes from our mother and genes from our father. The mixture is really what makes us who we are. Epigenetics is is a little bit different than, than just the DNA. It turns out that the DNA can be modified further mid-20th century, Conrad Waddington. And what he wanted to understand was what's called sulfate determinism. Mm. If you think about the uh, fertilized egg, it's going to give rise to lots of different cell types in the body. We're going to end up with nerve cells, kidney cells, liver cells, blood cells. Obviously, they're all different. They look very different. They function very differently. But they have the same DNA. Mm. And what Dr. Waddington was trying to really pose a question was why that Current. And um, to explain it, he, he actually coined the term epigenetics. It means literally above genetics. Um, and years later, scientists began finding a modification in DNA called DNA methylation. It's just a simple uh, addition of uh, carbon with three hydrogens, certain residues on DNA. And that turned out to change gene expression. So that really is when we went from a conceptual understanding of of epigenetics to a molecular understanding of epigenetics. And the important thing is that the sequence is is the same. So as I said before, a liver cell, its DNA is going to be identical to the DNA in a nerve cell. But they're going to have very different patterns of DNA methylation. To kind of give an example of this, literally we'll go back about 250 years to um, Linnaeus. Linnaeus was the person who was characterizing all the different types of species. And something that bothered him was a particular weed called toad flax. Mm-hmm. And what he found was that the toad flax had two different morphologies for its flowers. There was a common type of flower, which was in an oval shape. And occasionally what he would find is that there was a variant of the flower, which was a kind of a close. It almost looked like a pig's nose. Um, and, and it was disturbing to him because at the time, he, you know, they didn't know about evolution and he did not believe that one species could change in any way to look with a different appearance. What he said at the time was, this is if a cow gave rise to a calf with a wolf's head. That was the way he was characterizing (laughs) the flower. So it wasn't just like the individual differences between the flowers because they had the same DNA, right? They had the same DNA, but it wasn't just different flowers. It was essentially some plants would have one type of flower and another plant would have a different flower. 250 years later, scientists found that the only difference that explained this was a particular gene called LYCY. And what happened was in the uh, closed flower, that gene was methylated. It had more DNA methylation than the same plant with the normal appearing flower. 
So this mm. is a good example of epigenetics. It's simply a change in the modification to DNA. Everything else is the same. The DNA between these two plants would be identical, but flower morphology would change because a particular gene was methylated in one flower than another one. What's been discovered in about the last 10 years or so is that the DNA methylation really creates what's called the epigenome. It can be modified by environmental exposures. So I talked before mm. about the fact that there's genetics and epigenetics, and now we can think about them as the nature and nurture. What's more important, the, what we inherit from our parents, our environmental exposures. So we have an explanation for, for both of these now. What we inherit from our parents is nature, and our environmental exposures throughout our life, and even in utero, even before we're born, is the nurturing part, which explains how our, uh, essentially our genetics are modified. As someone with a minimal background in genetics, this is a lot for me to absorb. I gather that through the epigenetic examples in flowers, you can see how the nurture side of the classic nature and nurture debate can have a lasting impact on genetics through DNA methylation and environmental exposures. But how do these DNA changes translate to animal models and potentially humans? Can you give us a basic understanding and also share with our listeners an example? Sure. So, so animal models are commonly used, and particularly mice, in, in a lot of genetic research and, and now more recently with epigenetic research. And one of the reasons is that it's possible to change the genetic background. And, and really to illustrate it, I'll give an example of, of an epigenetic model, okay. uh, which has been used for about 15 years now, and it's called the agouti mouse. So agouti is, is a, a coat color pigment. The yellow tinge is due to the agouti, and as the hairs grow at a particular point in development of the hair, uh, a small yellow portion is uh, put down. Hmm. And what happens in the uh, goody mouse is, is a mutation which occurred because of, they get very fat. They inserted at the front of the agouti gene. Because of that, expression of the agouti gene is much higher than it should be. So these mice are yellow instead of brown. They're more prone to diabetes and cancer. Hmm. Um, and the cool thing is that if that little insert flies upstream of the gene, gets methylated, gene expression goes back to its normal level, and the mice look like they have a normal coat instead of the yellow coat. So what you can end up with with the litter in these agouti mice of brown mice, yellow mice, and what's called mottled, which have pigmentations, uh, patches of yellow and brown interspersed. Mm -hmm. And you can quantify how much of the modeling there is, how many yellow pups you get, how many brown pups you get. So here we see an epigenetic example of how DNA methylation can impact the coat color and health of goody mice, as well as the likelihood of passing on these traits to their offspring. I was curious what triggers DNA methylation and how much control we each have over our own gene expression. These mice now are kind of used as an environmental sensor for in utero exposure. So for example, there's a chemical bisphenol A, usually just called BPA, and, and it was in the news about five years ago. Right, with a lot of plastics, right? In the plastics and stuff, and people were concerned that leaching out of the plastics may have an effect. And mm -hmm. the Agouti mouse model demonstrated this effect very clearly because if you uh, had a number of mice that were exposed in utero, that is, you know, in, in their mom when the mom was pregnant, Mm -hmm. What it did was it drove uh, more and more of the pups towards the yellow phenotype than the brown phenotype. So it was actually having an epigenetic effect because it was altering how much, how much DNA methylation was laid down in that little insert um, upstream of the gene. So this is an example of, of how 
you can use a mouse model to demonstrate an epigenetic effect, and in this case, an important one because A, the plastic was very common uh, in use in, in, you know, in most of the markets. Um, right. So, so the biphenol A? This, yeah. The BPA was creating the methylation? Um, the BPA was actually decreasing the methylation. Okay. So um, what does the methylation mean with DNA? What the, what the methylation means is that the beginning part of a gene is methylated. It has more DNA methylation. It's not going to be expressed. Okay. Um, a good example I can give you is in female cells, there's two X chromosomes. One of them is inactive. And the inactive X chromosome, all the genes on the inactive X chromosome have lots of DNA methylation, whereas mm -hmm. their counterparts on the other X chromosome do not have DNA methylation. Okay. So in the Goody Mouse, what's happening, it's not an X chromosome gene, but it's the same principle. You can have one form that's methylated and in a different mouse, the identical form that's not methylated. And okay. that will drive the coloring between yellow and brown. It sounds like the methylation has a huge impact on how the genes are expressed or which genes are expressed. Exactly, and it's both. Okay, okay, <laughs> so, good. Yeah. I just wanted to try to clarify. It does. It has an impact on, on gene expression and which genes, depending on which ones, get methylated or not methylated. Okay. How can epigenetics and the genomic processes help explain important behaviors like sleep as well? Some of our listeners may work night shifts or they might have non-traditional work schedules beyond a nine-to-five. How does this play a role in our epigenetic makeup over time? Um, okay, to answer that, actually, I'll, I'll continue with the mouse model, and then we can talk okay. about people. Um, so in this case, these are experiments that were done a few years ago by a European lab, and they were interested in can DNA methylation play a change, uh, play, a, play a role in any changes in sleep uh, behaviors or day-night behaviors, which are called circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. um, and what they were studying was a, a little tissue in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which I'll just abbreviate to SCM. <laughs> the important thing is that the SCN is the master clock. Mm -hmm. So what happens is every day when we see light, it kind of resets the SCN. Okay. Um, and then the SCN coordinates with all the other tissues. So it's really the master clock coordinates with all the clocks in the different tissues, so everybody's on the same page, so to speak. So when we're awake... Our liver, for example, is metabolizing at an optimal rate. When we're asleep, the liver is, has calmed down and is metabolizing at a much lower rate. Mm -hmm. This is the way everything is, is synchronized. And um, what they did was an interesting model where they took mice, um, just normal wild-type mice, there's no genetic modifications, and they changed them from a normal 24-hour cycle, which is 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark, to an 11-hour, or really 22-hour cycle mm -hmm. of 11 hours of dark and 11 hours of night. So this is countering our normal biological rhythm is about 24 hours, and this is forcing them to go on a 22-hour program. And what they found is that when they took these mice after about a month or so on this 11, hour, 11 schedule and then put them back to, to a more normal schedule, they had a very hard time adapting back. They were mm -hmm. kind of more stuck on the 11-11 schedule. And ultimately what they found is that's because genes in the SCN became methylated. They changed their methylation patterns. So the reason they couldn't adapt back very quickly is because the methylation was changing gene expression in the SCN, and that was making it more difficult for them to return back to the normal cycle of a 12-12 or really a 24-hour cycle. And an interesting and a cool thing about this is that happened in young mice. But if you uh -huh. did the same thing in adult mice, they could snap back much more quickly from the 22-hour day to the 24-hour day because their SCN genes were not getting methylated. Oh, wow. And this, and this illustrates a principle, which is that the, the epigenome, these DNA modifications, 
occur much more easily early in life, particularly in utero as all the tissues are developing and the methylation patterns change, and also when we're very young. But as we get older, um, it's somewhat more difficult for these changes to occur. It still occurs under certain circumstances, but in this particular one, the SCN, that plasticity it had to change methylation patterns is lost in the adults. Right. So the younger mice are more susceptible to the impacts of a disrupted sleep schedule. Yeah, they, they are, at least in this type of, of, of model. Now, in humans, um, it, things are much more complicated. Right. Um, particularly, people's on shift, on shift work really are not fully on shift work. So somebody might work five days a week you know, at night, and then the weekend, they're going to try to get back to their other schedule, to a, to a more daytime schedule, because that's where the family is, is living, so to speak, in terms of when they're awake and asleep. So they're constantly going back and forth between these, and, and that's even potentially more disruptive. Um, Steve Shea, who, who runs the Institute, has done work uh, with humans, and what they did where they put people in these laboratories, they desynchronized them. So every day, this, their schedules were changing a bit. And what they found is several weeks later when they looked at blood chemistry, these people almost looked like they were pre-diabetic, oh which, which is consistent with the fact that people who do shift work are more prone to diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. So, so Steve was able to mimic that in, in just a short period of time with people by disrupting their cycle. So it doesn't mean they were truly pre-diabetic, but it shows you how you can start heading in that direction. So. That has not yet been linked to epigenetic changes um, in, in these, and again, they're adults, but mm-hmm. I suspect if they look more carefully, uh, some of these changes might be transiently epigenetic. Uh, and it's one of the principles, too, about epigenetic changes. It can go back and forth. Um, I'd imagine based on Dr. Shea's findings, it might not even be ethical to continue that type of study with humans, given what it might mean for changes in their health. Well, it, it, it's it's an interesting question. and, and uh, it wouldn't be ethical to do it long enough to actually cause disease states. Right. <laughs> but, but again, this is, you know, it's one of these things where you find out that it, it's a problem and then you have to then change your experimental paradigms in the future. Or you can go back to mouse models where right. those type of ethical problems uh, do not arise. Yeah. Another trending topic in workplace safety and health is stress. Sleep and circadian rhythms, as we learned, are, are linked to methylation. However, sleep can also impact stress and it could lead to higher risks of workplace injuries. Can you share with our listeners about the current research you're doing in this area of sleep and stress? So, um, yeah, I'll talk about it. This is work I'm doing with two colleagues, uh, Drs. Matt Butler and Chuck Allen here. And, and to explain this, I'm going to actually now kind of increase our scope of what epigenetic changes is to, okay. to uh, a little bit further. DNA is wrapped around proteins called histones. Mm-hmm. And the histones have little uh, fragments or tails that stick out from them, which can be modified. And they can be modified also with methylation. This is histone methylation, now not DNA methylation. Okay. There's other types of modifications, but I'll talk about histone methylation. That was what we're studying. So it just it's, it's a little bit more of the complexity. It's the same principle. These modifications help control gene expression, and they also often work in concert with DNA methylation. Mm-hmm. And what we were asking... Um, is we're trying to get to this thing I told you before about the master clock and it helps control all the other tissues. Right. And we've been looking at the problem of what happens when you, can you separate these? What we, what we did in our experiments were, it's a very simple one, again, another mouse model. We took mice that were essentially on a 12 hour day, 12 hour night schedule. Now mice are active at night, mm-hmm. not during the day like Nocturnal, we are. Nocturnal, yeah. And what we did was one time in a week, we shortened their night schedule. Mm-hmm. So they only got six hours of, of 
night and then they went back into a 12-12 daylight thing. So essentially one day we turned on the lights after six hours of, of darkness. And we looked at in the liver and we initially were designing these experiments to do this once a week for a long period of time and, and then mm. look at this particular methylation mark on the histones which also corresponds to gene expression and we found a lot of changes. But the remarkable things we found were when we looked earlier. So what happened was after only a few hours, mm -hmm. and again, remember, the, the light comes into the brain. The light's not, uh, the liver doesn't see the light, a better way to say right. it. Right. It's artificial light. It's artificial right. light, but it's, it's, it's not going to get to the liver. But yet mm -hmm. the liver was responding within three hours to the fact that the light came on because normally what happens is these uh, methylation marks on the histones would go up and down. They'd come up during the... Uh, start coming up a little bit during the day, peak at night, and then come back down again. Mm -hmm. And what happened was when we turned the lights on, they stayed at that peak much longer than they should have. So it extended out the amount of time that the um, methylation mark was uh, at its highest level. We were a bit surprised by this, so then we went and we looked a week later. So we just did, again, that single shift. Mm -hmm. And we looked a week later because we knew a week later that the mice had gone back and they were now active at night again and, and essentially dormant during the day. Mm -hmm. And what we were very surprised to find was that the histone methylation mark, which should have been peaking at night, was still peaking during the day. And this gets back to that principle I was talking about in terms of disruption. So now the liver is most active during the daytime but the mice are most active during the nighttime, so we kind of separated that out. And, and what Matt and Chuck and I want to do in the future mm -hmm. is start looking at how food influences this, because Matt's shown that you can essentially flip the liver epigenetic changes by feeding them only during the day and not allowing them to eat at night. So mm -hmm. we're going to try to see if combination of food and light, first of all, how it disrupts it, and then secondly, how you can mix in, uh, the food and the light changes to... Uh, mitigate the changes, which is really trying to figure out how we get back to the issue of shift work is how to make it easier for them to um, stay on, on a good circadian cycle each day. Right, because the animal model is a stand-in for these workplace situations where you have the night shift workers, right? And they're exposed to this type of light because they need to stay awake to do the work that they're doing. Exactly. They're, they're totally reversed of what they should be. So Mm -hmm. Again, the, you know, putting it simply, the way we're going to try to do this is to figure out is there a way to give them, for example, a, a, a feeding schedule that will help them stay on a better, keep essentially keep their brains in sync with the uh, with their bodies. Right, and plus you got to deal with the fact that workers are going to be more verbal about any any additional stress that they might be having as opposed to an animal. Yeah. It may be more challenging for them to stick to those schedules, right? Yeah, the, the mice don't <laughs> complain. <That's> yeah. <laughs> From the collaborative efforts of the sleep researchers in our lab, Dr. Turker has summarized how changes in circadian rhythms can impact gene expression and subsequent health. Given that we each pass on our genes to the next generation, I was curious if these epigenetic changes impact their health in perceivable ways, like the agouti mice. Through epigenetics, we know that these factors don't just impact your health, but may also affect the health of your children and even your grandchildren. There's even a Dutch study that I was reading that currently addresses epigenetics and diet. Can you tell us more about this study? Sure. The, the Dutch study, I'll, I'll talk about it, and then I'll talk about the implications of it. What mm -hmm. happened was in the, in the winter of 44, 45, 
-hmm. Essentially, the the Dutch were starting to aid the Allies, and that was angering German troops that were still there. Uh And what they did essentially was they blockaded and they stopped food from coming in. So it was an artificial famine. There was very little food in Holland, and they uh, went to very severe rations. A lot of people died from starvation during that Mm -hmm. time. Not surprisingly, some people got pregnant or were pregnant during that time. And what researchers found out were many decades later that the kids who were in utero at the time, particularly in the first or second trimester, not so much the third trimester, Mm -hmm. um, had very significant health consequences that would, you you can actually measure these health consequences later. They died earlier, they had cardiovascular disease, more diabetes. So this was an example um, where you have an in utero exposure, in this case famine, which mm-hmm. plays out over many, many, many years. And recently, scientists have begun looking at methylation pattern differences between these children and children born elsewhere. Wow. And it's still controversial, but some of them are suggesting that some of the metabolic genes have been uh, dampened down due to DNA methylation, and that's what makes it more difficult uh, for these people over their entire lifetimes. Wow. So it's, it, it introduces this concept, which is called uh, DOHAD, uh, Developmental Origins of Health and Disease, mm-hmm. which gets to the, the concept that in utero exposures can play an important role in your, uh, how healthy you are or the risk for disease later in life. And the Dohad researchers are now embracing epigenetics science, yeah. and they're starting to look at it. Um, Ken Thornburg, who's on campus here, has really been the one who's been pushing that on campus. Because the best explanation, if you remember earlier, I said that when we're developing is when our, our epigenome is very flexible. Right. So the, the younger concept, that you are, the more susceptible you are to these um, exposures in the environment, right? Exactly. So the concept is that the exposures very early in life or during, or during fetal development will get stuck at some point later on and, and stuck in the wrong way. Is that part of the rationale behind the neonatal vitamins that a lot of pregnant women <laughs> Yeah, the, well, the concept, for example, folic acid contributes to the appropriate methylation levels, they think, or at least the precursors to DNA methylation. Okay. Um, and that is one of the reasons to believe that folic acid supplementation helps uh, reduce the risk of birth defects. Wow. And the research that you're talking about was called DOHAD, correct? DOHAD, yeah. DOHAD. Is it possible to reverse these epigenetic changes? Uh, That is the hope. And again, Mm -hmm. one of the nice things about epigenetic changes as opposed to, so for example, mutations are very difficult to to reverse, but these epigenetic changes are reversible and scientists are actively Mm -hmm. trying to figure that out. So right now the the goal is to first figure out what these changes are and then possibly through different types of dietary supplementation later in life to maybe reverse them or at least reduce the types of changes. So that's what's thought about cancer biology is another place where this is actively being Mm -hmm. pursued because cancer is a mixture of of mutations and epigenetic changes and a lot of money being spent on on epigenetic drugs to see if it's possible to treat cancers with these drugs to essentially reverse the changes in gene expression back to a more normal cell type ideally there's prevention of exposure to these things but then if that's not feasible for whatever reason there's still hope with some of these changes that we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah, so prevention via, and again, particular diets are better than other diets for, right. for potentially prevention, but it, but if the disease comes up, then you'd want to go to the secondary, which is to try to treat it by with epigenetic modifying drugs. In your field of work, you also studied the workplace exposures that can have impacts on worker epigenetic makeup over time. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, so I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about 
my own research funded by NASA because they're very concerned about the effects of space radiation from a trip to Mars or on a moon colony mm-hmm. type of things. And we've been doing some work in mice and, and really asking the question, and this is now in adult mice, not in, not in the young mice, mm-hmm. can radiation exposure change epigenetic patterns? And, and one of the first things we found, which was quite interesting, was that if you expose a mouse to, to radiation, then you look in different tissues. First of all, we could detect methylation changes, and they weren't random. You took all the DNA sequences and when methylation changes occurred and then mapped them, they would map to specific functions. Or specific, mm-hmm. Really, multiple genes would fit into a function, so it was that specific in terms of metabolic pathways were being altered with DNA methylation. And the most interesting thing we found in these first experiments was that it was tissue specificity. So, for example, in the heart, the um, genes and pathways that were modified were involved in cardiovascular functions, whereas mm-hmm. in the brain, the genes and pathways that were modified were involved in neuronal functions. So the mm-hmm. same exposure in two different tissues elicited a very different response in the epigenome, and those responses uh-huh. are telling us that these methylation changes are somehow involved in reacting to the exposure and reacting in terms of the cell type. So the cell types are working specifically with what's important to them. And it makes sense because a heart cell is really doesn't really need to rev up or rev down neuronal functions in order to deal with the radiation effect. And likewise, you know, the opposite for the brain doesn't need to deal with cardiovascular functions. So it makes sense in terms of uh, you know, understanding this, but right now we have no idea of how these types of changes are, are occurring, and that's what we'd like to do in the future. So it really, it really illustrates the principle that I said earlier, that the environment affects us in ways that we had 10 years ago we never would have predicted. And some people are even now saying, if you think about um, our bodies and, and our epigenomes are now essentially recording all of our exposures mm-hmm. over, our, over our lifetimes. It's kind of the the physics principle that you can start somewhere and go all the way backwards and figure out what happened. And and some people think now the epigenome is the same, that we could look at an old person, you can look at the epigenome, and you can go backwards and and predict all their life exposures. Wow. Um, It's like genetic big brother. Yeah, it's a bit bit theoretical, obviously, but that, that in principle, that's how it would work. Yeah, wow. It's really interesting. A lot of the researchers in our lab are in the applied field where we design health interventions that really target all these behaviors that we've been talking about. Do you feel like through epigenetics you can see these changes from from adapting your sleep and your diet and your response to stress? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of the nice things about this, as I said before, is that these modifications are reversible. So if you think in terms of if you do something that's not good and you make epigenetic changes, mm-hmm. the opposite is true too. A good lifestyle will create changes that are more consistent, let's say, for example, with metabolism, you know, everything working together in the right way. You've had bad behaviors if you're eating not the right food, you're not exercising, and then you change to where you're exercising more, you're changing your diet, all of those will have a positive influence. An important concept is none of these things are necessarily totally established in, in our epigenomes. It may take decades and decades of bad behavior to really change these things so they're mm-hmm. irreversible. So at any point in time, if you change your lifestyle to a healthier one, you lose weight, you change your blood chemistry to a better one, it will have a positive impact. And just like, as I said, negative lifestyles will have a negative impact. Positive lifestyles will have a positive impact, and they can help preserve you know, what should be our optimal epigenome. Through our research at the Institute, we can help organizations become aware of how worker conditions can impact their health. Do you recommend any resources for any of our listeners who might want to learn more? 
yeah, I, I don't usually make this recommendation, but if you okay. Google epigenetics and wiki, it is really detailed and well-written. And I think for the layperson, you can get a lot of information on that and, and a good understanding. But in terms of a specific one, if people look for a video called Ghost in Our Genes, which was mm. produced by National Public Radio, and you can find it on YouTube. It was, it was made some time ago, but it was when these first concepts about transgenerational effects were, were coming out. And at least two of the scientists on it, John Pierre Issa, I've known for a while. Um, he's done a lot of work on epigenetics and aging. And Randy Jertle has been working with the Agouti Mouse model. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think if people have 40 minutes, that would be a really good place to, uh, to find it. Again, it's called Ghost in Our Genes. Yeah, Ghost in Our Genes. Awesome. We always like to end the show with a takeaway. If you can give our audience one takeaway on the public health significance of epigenetics... What would that be? Well, I, I think, you know, in a sense, we've, we've gone through it. You know, we talked about that we're a mixture of genetics, you know, nature and nurture, and this is really the nurture side. So the nice thing that maybe we can do something about is, is we are what we eat, breathe, you know, mm-hmm. drink, you know, what we exercise, everything else, we're, we're, and also what we're exposed to, you know, we're places we're living. Uh, and now we're beginning to understand why that is. So, you know, that's just kind of like a little guide in terms of it really does make a difference what you do because... Um, it's reflected now in potentially stable changes in the epigenome, which could, which could have important impacts on our health. Mm-hmm. But the other one, which is the fascinating takeaway, which is you know, really appreciated more recently, is it might just not be what we do, but it might be what our parents do, for example, yeah. what our mother does. And there's even studies suggesting that it's what our grandparents potentially do. There was a study from Sweden showing that what, what grandfathers ate or didn't eat impact the health of their grandchildren so it's in a sense we can we can do stuff but it's really looking forward we need to take care of ourselves because it's going to impact generations down the road it's not just our generation it's the generations before and the generations to come that are all affected by these modifications yeah it's gonna be a lot for me to think about next time i have a cookie and i want to have another one might have implications for (laughs) for my kids and the kids of my kids you're listening to what's work got to do with it your go-to resource on all things workplace, safety, health, and well-being. We want to hear from you on workplace topics that you would like to discuss. Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to our Organ in the Workplace blog or follow us on social media at facebook.com slash or on Twitter at OHSU Health to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and is hosted and directed by Helen Shuckers, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramish Babu. Thanks for tuning in.